Hey everyone, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, The Last Nighters, and The Last Nighters are part of the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. This is episode 84 of the show. You can find the show notes more at lastnighters.com slash 84. You can also find it at the Launchpad Media, but I repeat myself. Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about Crazy Heart, the movie starring Jeff Lebowski, or Jeff Bridges as he's otherwise known, and we have a special guest. He is Scott M. He's a Texas-based musician who enjoys good music, good books, and long <laughs> He plays shows and weddings yes. and even runs a trivia night each week. Until his demands are met, Scott's a strong advocate for freedom who is constantly engaging with people on Facebook, especially when it comes to policing and civil asset forfeiture, among other crimes. He's trying to move the needle, the needle back toward liberty, and he's recently downsized and renovated an RV that he now lives in down by the river and is now broadcasting from. Welcome to the show. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Friday night. Yeah. It is a Friday night now. Your, your bio was a lot better than mine. Well, I, I right. took portions. This is Friday now. I should be working. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I took portions of your bio and I, I embellished a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now, part of the reason that this movie got mm -hmm. selected was because you had recent events that happened to open up your Friday nights, and you were playing shows um, in various venues, right? And you had them booked out through the end of the year. And then, uh, what what has happened? If you're comfortable talking about it. Uh, oh yeah, no, no. I mean, it happens. Um, they had booked. They got with us before July, and they booked us the entire month of July. Um, and then they broke it down in two contracts. They said, we'll give you the whole rest of the year in the second contract. But what they were doing was testing out whether they wanted to do, um, it was actually Saturdays, whether they wanted to do Saturdays or Sundays. Um, and they decided on Sundays and I had booked 11 Saturdays with them. That was basically every Saturday I had left for the remainder of the year and lost all of them, uh, to corporate policy. So what can you do? Good moment for stoicism, right? Indeed, Embrace yes. Things that you can't control and you can't. Um, yeah. Point of personal privilege. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, were you a country singer or a performer oh, or some kind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I cover. I tell people I cover everything from Frank Sinatra to Coolio, which we did as the bonus feature. We'll get a slight uh, showing of Gangster's Paradise. Yeah, and also um, the songs. Yeah, song. I mean, especially now with the internet, you can cover everything. It makes it really easy. Yeah, so if you guys want to hear his rendition of Coolio yes. and the Thong song, then hit us up at lastnarrative.com slash Patreon. But why don't we get into this movie? We always start with the Google description, and that leads off our discussion. So here we go. Crazy Heart came out in 2009. It's a drama slash romance, two hours and two minutes long. 7.2 on the IMDb, 90% Rotten Tomatoes, and a 4 out of 4 from RogerEbert.com, and 89% of Google users like it. The description is, with too many years of hazy days and boozy nights, former country music legend Bad Blake, played by Jeff Bridges or Jeff Lebowski, is reduced to playing dives and bowling alleys. In town for his latest gig, Blake meets Gene Craddock, played by Maggie Gyllenhaal, a sympathetic reporter who has come to do a story on him. He unexpectedly, war unexpectedly warms to her and a romance begins. Then the singer finds himself at a crossroads that may threaten his last shot at happiness. Came out December 16, 2009. Director Scott Cooper... And the uh, the main song in this was The Weary Kind, which won an Academy Award, as did Jeff Lebowski for his turn as Bad Blake. So uh, that is a Google description. Robert, what did you think of that Google description there? Well, the way you said it was really, it struck a heart, it cored in my heart. I was started to weep and cry a little bit. You just did it so beautifully. Um, you know, you talked about the movie and you said things and things that happened in the movie. And I was just really moved by how wonderful you did that and how incredible that description was about the movie that we watched. Man, I could just, I could really just hear it over and over again. It would just make me so happy. 
<laughs> it's a good time for that banner. <laughs> I think you should read the synopsis again. It was so moving. It was honestly more moving than the movie. I think that might be true. Now, the weird thing about this movie is, and in the description they don't mention this, is the heavy, heavy amount of alcohol that is kind of the point of uh, Jeff Lebowski's kind of problem, right? He's been an alcoholic for years and years. He's been mm -hmm. drifting through life as this country singer who had some modicum of success at some point. And then he kind of tried to coast on that. He tried to live off of some of his older hits and just keep on playing them without creating anything new of value. Pulling and, James Taylor. Yeah, and he never grew out of that. So he was just kind of drifting through into his upper 50s as if he was still in his mid-20s, complete with, you know, the boozing up all night and, and the uh, groupies, the women showing up at the shows. Uh, Dude, and chicks are like that at shows. Oh, my goodness. Chicks are crazy at shows. <laughs> when I worked on Carnival, I had a woman one time, and granted, I, it was probably the way I was dressed, but I was singing Marvin Gaye, Let's Get It On, and I was laying on top of the piano and the piano bar while I was singing this, and I guess I got off. The piano bar has got like this little circular bar around it. And I was walking around singing the song, you know, just with all my heart. And uh, this woman grabbed me. And has you ever, you ever had somebody like stick their knee like right in the middle of your back and grab your shoulders and pull you back? And this lady caught me where the bar top did that. So she pulls me back. You got you to gotta take me off the main screen. It's weirding me out. Yes, I got to see all y'all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she was... uh <clears throat> I'll never figure it out. I, I, this is the moment I joined the Me Too movement. And this woman proceeded to n lick my ear in front of the entire crowd of strangers. I've never met. I don't know this woman. And so they are exactly like we saw in the movie. They, Man, they will hound you out of the show. They will ear rape you. With they will tongue. ear rape you. Oh, God, they will ear rape you. Yeah. yeah you're I've been telling about the evils of women for years. So thank you, Scott. I appreciate that. Yeah, man. No problem. Just grab a guitar, play some Oasis, Wonderwall, golden. You're golden. Just play it 40 different times at a, at a bar. It'll pay yeah. you, and you'll get all the ladies right there. As many as you That's can it. handle. As many as you can handle. Oh, goodness. Nope, that was not my bag. I don't like doing crazy women at bars that hit on you when you sing songs. Anymore. 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 No, man, ever. It's not cool. It's too easy. Where's the fun of that when they just where's, throw you? Where's the chase? Where's the, the chase? Exactly. He's a hunter. He doesn't want to be I'm from fed Texas. a goat. He's no. a T-Rex. He needs yeah. to hunt. <laughs> Don't leave it chained up right there and raise it out of a little pit, okay? Let yeah. it loose in the wild. That's right. You can leave it in a caged area. I'm okay with that, but at least at least it'll work for it. You got to satisfy those predatory instincts <laughs> a little bit. Come on. I want to feel like somewhat of a man, okay? Uh, yep. Movie's good. Your version of the synopsis was perfect. Yeah, Dan. Reading it. You, you read it. You read it you, word for you word. You me. You moved me. So where do you want to go with this, guys? Who's got something in their notes that is of interest? Uh, you know, the only thing that was interesting on me is the song uh, Funny How Fallen Feels Like Flying. Good song. And they use that, but they use it <clears throat> for the whole movie, uh, depicting the whole movie, that he's actually falling the whole time, but he feels like he's flying because he met the Molly Arnold, we met Gene, but he's actually falling even though he's feeling like he's making his way up, everything's going his way with this chick, but... And he tragically crashes at the bottom of it. But they re keep repeating those same lines in that song. And I always thought it was a neat way of telling the whole story right there in two seconds without now, actually watching. Scott, I mean, you're clearly, you have a lot of experience with these bar women or these women that are attracted to these musicians. You're not one of these women yourself, but you know about them a little bit. This Molly character, she 
she meets him when he is he's kind of old and disheveled and drunk all the time he slurs his words he's smoking all the time he's just kind of stumbling over things but he's still this legendary singer country guy i don't know what's i i assume that the the women that are just want to bang him in the bars they're just like a one done one and done situation where there's like hey guess who i had sex with last night bad blake what's up but the molly girl she's like interested in a relationship with this train wreck and i think i don't know it, it strikes me as <laughs> like there's not something good going on with her like she seems a little messed up too because i yeah i i would think that i'd be not touching i'd be I, i'd be friends with the guy but i wouldn't climb into bed with this this guy that like repeatedly and have him around my kid and stuff i mean he seems yeah. like a normal guy but you know he's not he's not a fully functioning human being right right no i, I don't know i think it probably has more to do with the fact that they play us along the lines of being vulnerable um just because you're kind of lonely you know you're the only person in the corner all by yourself singing to people sometimes i mean not not that he was doing that in the the bar he's got a band but ultimately it's still kind of just you and even the way that you could tell by the way the women looked at him like there was no one else on that stage you know it was just bad blake um and i think that's probably the biggest but she had you, you could tell she had her doubts i mean she was always hesitant about it um telling him not to drink in front of the kid um i mean she says it a whole bunch of times that she had doubts about him but I don't know. Maybe it's just too strong. I know some chicks just absolutely love musicians. It doesn't matter what you do. Right. My, my take on her situation was that she'd gone down that road before. She'd uh, already been married and divorced. And I think alcohol played a big role in that. And so she had that that uh, experience and the sneaking suspicion that this was another guy who would be a similar thing. And she was trying to ignore that and continue to move forward because she did like him. But in a way, he was like paying for the sins of her previous relationships. So she wasn't really giving him like the full um, opportunity, right? Like he was not, he was given a very short leash when it came down to it. Yeah. Where, well, she says it. She says it in the line, uh, I know what I don't want to do again. I mean, she says it. She's already aware yeah. of it. Um, she knew right off the bat that he was just another one of them. Um, I, at that point, it turns probably into the big blick thing where he's just a legend and she's enjoying that moment but otherwise she knew everything about him that she didn't like about him and she did it anyway yeah now did you guys find that the the movie didn't really tell the crux of the story or the the big climactic like difficult scene where he loses the kid it's not clear to me in watching it that he was drunk and that happened to me he was with the family he went to the aquarium with them and then they wanted to give the mom a break and so they were going to go hang out and do stuff him and the kid and he's like, oh, let's go wet our whistle in this bar. And he's going to go get one drink and get the kid a ginger ale. And right. then the, he tells the kid, oh, yeah, go explore whatever. And he loses, you know, he, he doesn't keep his eye on the kid for like five, ten seconds. And the kid's gone. That doesn't tell me that Bad Blake was drunk and that's why that happened. That tells right. me that the kid is doing a kid thing and he looked away for five, ten seconds and the kid disappears. And he had one sip of that double whiskey and that was it as far as we saw in, on the screen. But then later on, when he refers back to that situation, he says that he was drunk. And so I was very confused by that because when would he have had an opportunity to be drunk to have that situation arise? And how did him being drunk allegedly have anything to do with that event that you know became the thing that broke uh, his relationship with the mother there? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Daniel. That, that's the, the almost the entirety of my notes were about that scene where I thought the bad Blake got a raw deal in this little episode where... 
he looks he tells buddy you know buddy wants to go explore the restaurant and he's like yeah go ahead and yeah he he's out of his sight for five ten seconds tell me what parent hasn't had their kid out of their sight for more than five to ten seconds every single one of them so this could happen to anybody it didn't happen because this guy was wasted drunk i got lost in World, and it happened and like your, your parents were probably sober at the sober time. completely sober my dad's never touched alcohol no that's not true my dad didn't touch alcohol until i was 21 and even and better yet their custody or stewardship of you at that time couldn't be said to be negligent right oh no not at all mm -mm. it's just something that it, happens from it, time it was to time. it was it was like a one of those i turn left to look they go right and someone just happens to walk in between you and them to where even if you do turn around you're not even going to see them five feet away because it's already been blocked and then at that point you don't know what to do i mean i remember the full panic god almighty i remember the panic of being lost but no it just happened they weren't drunk they just i went one way turned around and they were gone yeah no yeah. but you know at the same time though in the movie when he's over there he's over there um when he hurt his foot because he did it on his way to Santa Fe. So he stays with her the whole time. He's got his little broken foot. And there's that moment when they're outside. And that's when she says, just don't drink in front of Buddy. And he goes, okay. And he just chugs his whiskey. So maybe that was the part of the story where they were trying to insinuate that even though he wasn't drinking in that scene, he was drinking at least at the house while he was around yeah. him. See, I saw that scene where he, she was going to introduce him to Buddy and the mother and, and bad Blake were enjoying having a, a drink and she said, don't drink in front of him. So he finishes his drink so that he's not right. being in front of him. And I, I guess the story as presented in the film doesn't really, I don't know. It doesn't present it very well to me that he's a drunk and he's having difficulty managing his life. And it doesn't show the mother's concern for not, not showing the kid him drinking as a big issue. Like, well, you it's know, the other scene thing, um, nothing really happens as a result. Like, I thought that the kid would, I don't know, have had a traumatic experience with his his real father being an alcoholic and then react to seeing somebody drinking and, and have like an issue. But that never happens. So, right. like, there's never any consequence of him drinking in front of the kid except for the kid disappearing. And that would have happened anyway. Right. Um, well, I mean, I guess maybe the other side of the story, too, on it is the mother just being quick to be overreacting because uh, they show that in the scene where he first takes the kid when he first goes out with buddy and he's like two minutes behind her in the house. She walks in the house first and is walking around screaming, buddy, buddy, where are you? I mean, this is what in the nineties yeah, it's in the night. It's gotta be in the nineties. The movie is set. I mean, they're talking on house phones, wireless house phones. Um, the guy at the very end, the son makes the implication that he's got caller ID when he says, I've got your number. Um, so it's got to be in the 90s at some point. So there's got to be some slight panic because it's not like they texted her and said, hey, we're off partying around or whatnot. And we're going to be back. But even then, she freaked out in that moment. So even if he only had the two sips, the fact that he was lost in the first place, she's, she probably would have freaked out equally. Even if he hadn't drunk at all, maybe she would have freaked out because she, she freaked out the first time. And the, the movie didn't give us the impression that he was drinking the first night they hung out. Right. And she clearly doesn't trust him and is questioning her own judgment in leaving the kid with him mm -hmm. because, you know, I, I got to wonder how much responsibility she bears if she thinks he's that much of a, a mess and that this could only happen to him because he's negligent or a drunk or whatever, then how much guilt she feels when anything happens on his watch. Right. 
and then so then she's like overreacts and hates herself and how why did i ever trust you and yeah i knew well, i couldn't could trust be, you why did i that could be a better explanation for why she acted out the way she did the first time just with them being gone the first night because she already knew what he was in the first place and she was reacting how she thought appropriate to what of a person yeah. she actually thought he was in the first place because <laughs> she never trusted him it never seemed like she trusted him though right. she entrusted her child with him yeah so I know, right she didn't trust him, but then she gave in to trusting him with her most precious thing, and then got burned for it. So then she's going to be doubly like upset with her own with herself, right? So maybe that's why another component to why she overreacted because she'd been burned before. Like it's kind of established that she had been with some men in the past who weren't so good for her, and they had drinking problems, etc. And so she was very cautious around that with him, yet still gave him that partial chance, but then punished him for the sins of the others. And then when the kid gets lost and, and your story is actually pretty telling because, you know, you do panic when you get lost like that. You do freak out. Oh, man, it was I can still feel it. Like I yeah. had to have been like six or seven. and I can still I can feel it. You know, when, anxiety. When my, my wife and I, we, we discussed with our kids, you know, how a typical thing that you'll say when a kid's resistant to, to leaving a place is like, all right, we're going to go without you. Um, I think this is a Stefan Molyneux point, and And we adhere to this. To a kid's perspective, that is almost tantamount to a death sentence because to them, you know, they don't get that their single like lifeline to sustaining, you know, where where they live and how they get fed and taken care of is just telling them that they're going to leave them there. So the kid's going to be thinking, holy shit, I'm on my own. I'm going to die. You know, and that's one of the things that makes it so traumatic because they, they can't comprehend it. You know, they, they don't have the context. Um, right. To, to understand what's going on hide and seek game where they don't even realize the person's behind the hand <laughs> i do like mike's point you should pull that up on a little banner he prioritized getting drunk over watching the kid i mean that was obvious he went out of his way to I, go get that drink i still don't see that as neglect though i mean imagine if he had drunk if he was thirsty he just wanted a glass of water right well i mean then it that would be an easy way to say that's not neglect because <clears throat> it's just getting a glass of water and moving along but not only did he order one McClure's, he ordered a double. I mean, that's, that was his first drink off the bat. And given that it is Houston and it is hot, that drink is going to do some good when you are sweated out all the water in your system. Mm. I don't that's know. You, you know, the, the armchair director that I am, I would have liked to see him have gone to this bar, had that double, and then ordered another, yeah. and then he gets lost. Right. To the point to where, okay, now he's drunk and clearly giving in to his addiction by ordering even more and that results in the kid getting lost because what we're left with is oh he ordered a drink has a sip and kid disappears maybe that's the twist on that moment that he can't even he can't even say that he wasn't drinking that it was only one sip you know yeah so like when like he's he talking about, that ability like when he's talking to the mall security guard and the, <laughs> the security guard's like have you had anything to drink and he says well yeah one drink yeah but he's like what does that have to do with it yeah. Right, because to me that that seemed like it was a gotcha situation that was going to be the movie's point was yeah technically he had had a sip of a drink and and he's going to get railroaded for it but he wasn't mm -hmm. actually drunk and that didn't contribute to the problem but then later on he admits or says that he was drunk that time at the time so I don't know it's just it's 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 just not presented very well as an audience yeah. I'm I'm confused by the situation yeah, I'm with you Daniel. Nice. Would have been nice, maybe if you go back in the scene, maybe, and you can see like a flask in his pocket or something to imply that he was taking sips. Because otherwise, I agree, it doesn't, it doesn't give the impression that he went there drunk. Now, ultimately, though, it's not 
it's the more important aspect is that he has been drunk his entire life and he's turning his life around. And this is more just kind of like a kick in the ass to an impetus to actually turn his life around. I guess that's the important thing. Yeah, this becomes his rock bottom moment that makes him finally realize that perhaps he has a problem, which gets him to seek help and want to get sober. And that's good. But I keep going back to, you know, it was the kind of this gotcha like technicality that this yeah. being this situation, you know, it wasn't like he actually hit rock bottom. And like even his car accident, it was like he fell asleep at the wheel and had the accident. It wasn't like he was like super drunk and had the accident. I mean, sure, he was drinking. He had a flask on him. But it's, again, not presented as if he's drunk while driving. Right. No, he just looked tired. And that that is a musician. I mean, granted, everybody's made tired drives. It'd be silly to say that it's only one person or one sector of the world that has made a tired drive. But, man, I have. I've had a gig in Austin. You finish it. 11 o'clock you gotta pack up all your shit and it takes you an hour to do that and get out of there you're gone at 12 o'clock but then you gotta drive back to houston and play a gig the next day at 12 o'clock and i mean you make that drive and you're just falling asleep at the wheel that stuff's brutal i wouldn't be surprised plus he's an old man i'm an ableist he's an old man he can't drive that long without needing a nap let the man nap could have saved everything just pull over to a rest stop the government didn't have rest stops in the 90s guys it would have been bad. He could have saved a lot of people. If Terrible. only, if only if the only. government, if only had government in the nineties, man, if, if only we were stuck on the word is now uh, back to the, you know, he does use this technicality as a hitting rock bottom and wanting to get sober. And he springs words in, into a, a, like almost a Jordan Peterson, like clean his room situation where he's finally cleaned himself up. He cleans his own house and then he wants to go and get, uh, the 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 mother and the child back in his life and she turns him down and i mean i i can't begrudge her for making that decision but i felt like that was uh a little bit unfair to him especially if she still loved him i mean it's totally up to her of course but like he actually did the thing that he needed to do and it didn't result in her recognizing it i guess but on the flip side of it it also was the impetus for him to write his best song, right? He finally created something new after coasting on prior material for 20 or 30 years. And now he had something happen that impacted his personal situation that drove him to, to create something very, very beautiful and write that song that he gave to his, uh, his partner, Tommy Sweet. Was that the guy, the Colin Farrell character? Mm-hmm. His protege. His protege who upstaged Tommy him. Sweet. And he was very, um, he's very reticent to open <laughs> for him or... Uh, uh, now, can you speak to that a little bit, Scott? Because oh, you know, yeah. in, in, in being a musician yourself, I mean, is that like a big deal where people oh, yeah. will have like, an ego and people get checked, especially if somebody surpasses them who they've mm-hmm. kind of shepherded along a little bit? Yep. Um, one of my good buddies who was one of, and it's really funny to me that this is the story, he was in one of the number one reggae bands in Houston, and now he is a defense lawyer. One of those really awesome turn yourself around stories like a heroin addict doing all kinds of cocaine, all all just freaking everything. Turns life around, gets his lawyer degree, and he, now he's a defense lawyer, criminal lawyer. Um, so that's awesome. But I'll never forget it. The first day I met him, uh, we were playing a benefit concert. And um, I had played maybe one show with his band because um, the guy that was his lead guitar player um hosted an open mic that i went to and um so i started playing with him um and then uh 
he had a drummer, which was naturally the other guy's drummer. So basically his band. <laughs> and so we go to this benefit and they're all set up. It's a full band thing. And I, I remember he walked up to me and he, he didn't introduce himself. He just, he leaned in and he said, if you steal my band, I'll fucking kill you. And that was it. That was all he said to me. I mean, he's one of my great friends now, but it's one of those that I was. I was the new guy on the scene. Um, I was kind of just stepping in a little bit on his shoes, not so much in a way that, oh, I'm amazing. But no, he uh, he absolutely, that, that ego of worrying about people coming in and stepping on your territory or, or taking your shit, um, taking your spotlight. What else do you have except standing on the front of the stage with the spotlight on you if you're a musician? I mean, you're, I always tell people you're either the head of the party or your background noise. There's only two options. So Tommy, he shepherded along when Blake was having a measure of success, right? And then Tommy Sweet kind of surpassed him. So do you think that plays into uh, how Bad Blake treats the backup bands that he's working with on the, uh, you know, the road bands or whatever, the tour? Like they provide a backup band to him when he's there and he treats them like garbage, which is kind of unfortunate. Like a lot of them were big fans of his. They, uh, they legend and he was no, like i would say that's just something that comes with him being a lifelong musician um and dealing with band egos um because they exist man do they exist um everybody's got an ego in this business but the um i don't i wouldn't say i was surprised by the way he treated background bands i mean uh, he's obviously a drunk and an asshole to begin with just in his character but no when you've dealt with i mean even the way he treats the sound guy um I've had issues with sound guys like you. It, it happens when, when someone else is doing shit like that and you just feel like, you know, you want something done a little differently. Like you'll, you'll, you'll speak up. Uh, that didn't surprise me. Um, so yeah, now that the sound guy situation was kind of interesting because I felt like bad Blake was sort of taking it out on him because he was Tommy sweets sound guy. So he's kind of, you know, putting that little extra edge of dickness into yeah. his uh, interaction right. with, him. but at the same time, uh, you know, you've got the monitors, right? Or he's got monitors in his ears up on stage. And that's different than what's going to hit the audience, right? So yes. whatever the mix is where the sound guy is versus what the mm -hmm. artist what the is going to hear. Is gonna hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I, I remember actually going to, back in the 90s, uh, an REM concert in Seattle. And it was an outdoor concert. And the mix was awful in the audience. But if you plugged your ears or had earphones or um, earplugs in, it sounded great. And so it was a case of the guy doing the soundboard, you know, in the, in the back of the audience, he had ear, earplugs in. And so he was mixing to that. So anyone who didn't have earplugs in or wasn't plugging their ears could barely hear the, the music at all. It was terrible. Hmm. No, man, if you ever go to a concert, stand as close to the sound guy as possible because he is mixing it to where it sounds good to him. And so if you're standing as close to him as possible, you're going to hear the best sound of the show. Or her. You sexist. Or her. I don't think I've ever met a female sound sound girl. Oh, my representation, diversity. Sound girl. Ugh. I'm gonna start protesting. Yeah. So, so back to the. So you you pretty much dispelled my theory that we had Bad Blake taking it out on the other bands as a result of him being burned by the Tommy Sweet thing or the perceived slight, which was similar to how the Maggie Gyllenhaal character was treating him based on her past relationships with men. So she was treating him differently based on her past experience, just like he was treating new bands differently because of his past experience with Tommy, even though Tommy was actually a good guy trying to help him out, like trying to like advance his career, help him in any yeah, way. That well, and they show that because they show that the record companies, the people that are getting in the way, even Tommy or not, both of them say it. 
Blake says they won't let me write a solo album, which is stupid that they won't let me write a solo album. Um, and then Tommy says the same thing that the record company doesn't want us to do a duet. Like they don't see that as the best next move, um, which stinks because you got clearly two great musicians that want to collaborate and red tape is getting in the way. I am shocked. Now I don't blame them though because they've got this guy, bad Blake who's coasting, right? He's not creating anything new. And I've, I don't know if this is like a thing, but it seems like so many bands and so many artists sort of peak at a certain time in their life, like a young point in their life. And then they coast from there. Like there's very few bands that are consistently good for a decade or two, you know? Yeah. Well, but Man, it's so hard to write those songs. I mean, the, the show does a good job of, of portraying that. It's so hard to write those songs. I mean, you can write bullshit songs. That's not difficult. Uh, anybody can. I'm sitting in the back of my truck drinking beer with my girl. Like, anybody can write that fucking song. Well, take an amazing song or an amazing band, like the Rolling Stones. Like, how much of their stuff from the 60s and 70s still gets play versus anything after? Yeah, but they stole half their shit. I mean, that's 30s, 20s, Genius and 30s steals. blues. Blues musicians. I mean, that was what they were. They really were. Um, Led Zeppelin, the same thing. Um, oh, man, what's the song? Uh, it's going to slip my brain. Uh, when the Levee Breaks. Led Zeppelin, old blues song from the 30s. I mean, I listen to it now. It's amazing. But it was an old blues song. Um, and, dude, everybody freaking steals shit. <laughs> Rolling Stones, same thing. Who knows how good they'd be if they were actually writing stuff that was theirs at the time. You know, most of those bands were together for about 10 years before they ever made it. The Beatles were hanging around in pubs for about 10 years before they went big. Same thing with Rolling Stones. Like, that's about the average 10 years before a band will make it big. I imagine it takes a while to, like, hone your skills and gel as a as a unit, Oh, right? yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Going? Yeah. Yeah, dude, absolutely. To get to that sync level, that stuff's tough. But when you feel it, man, God, when you feel it, that's fun. That's addicting getting on stage and the best are when you don't even have to look at each other. You can, you just slow down enough that you can feel that something's about to change in the song. And then it, it happens and nobody said a word, but everybody hit this. Everybody did it. That just, you changed the whole dynamic of the song without ever speaking. And it was all just based off this, you this building feeling. Um, but you don't get that with background bands. So why the hell wouldn't you treat them like shit? Um, they're just hired guns. They don't care. They don't care about your music. So it's it's kind of a flip side of I can see why he would treat them bad. They're just paid to be there. Um, well, I counter that the bowling band, they were excited to play with they, him. But they, but that, bad. yeah, that was getting down to like, a, they were good because that was, those are people who still play because they love it, you know? you Man, whenever I tell myself I do this for a living and I'm going to work, like that shit frustrates the hell out of me. We lost him. Um, they were still doing it for fun. Um but that was also the guy who wrote the song. We talked about that earlier. The guy who shows up at his door is Ryan Bingham. And he wrote the actual song for the movie, Crazy Heart. And he did it on his drive. They said um, he got the phone call asking if he would write the song. And he was making a drive, I don't know, from where to where for a gig. But on his drive there, he actually wrote that song um, just on the drive. And then he sent it in. And they were like, oh, well, that's gonna, that's it. That's, that's the main title song. And that was how they got that song. He did it on one stab. It was his first try writing it. Incredible. He's a good songwriter, but he's got stupid political beliefs. That's all too Sad. common coming out of Hollywood and Sad. entertainment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You went to the bathroom. I hope you washed your hands, Robert. 
No, I was a sneezing fit. I didn't want to subject everybody to that. No, thank you for that. Oh, we could have saved your soul. That was the superstition, Daniel. That's why you cover your mouth when you sneeze, is to save your soul. So it doesn't escape from your body. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so so Robert uh, Scott hosts a trivia night. And um, I don't, I don't I know. I love trivia. Yeah, trivia. Yeah, I'm, on a, I'm on a recurring team here in the Northwest. Very nice. It's known as uh, Bob Blah Blah's Law Blog. Very nice. And we I would are, love to say that as a host. Yeah. Most people seem to enjoy it. So that's, <laughs> that's a good, good name. It's a good name. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we are on a, uh, I think we're on about a four-month win streak. Very nice. Okay, Thank so you. You, my favorite trivia question. Here you go. Let's see All if right. you get this. Daniel did not get this. He won't get it. I might. He didn't get it. It was, he got, he struggled. So a month starting on a Sunday always has what? It's a trivia question. Mm -hmm. A month starting on a Sunday always has what? No, Friday it's not the 13th. No, you bastard. Is that wrong? No, you got it. You got what it. What did you say? Friday the 13th. Yes, that is right. Yeah. It was a Friday mm. the 13th. And my answer available in the pre-show for our Patreon supporters was mm. a Monday on the 2nd, which is not mm. wrong. It's just not, it's not significant. Wrong. It's just not significant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Trivia yeah. has been fun. But now, when, when more trivia, exciting. Uh, we never won, but we did win uh, best name. Well, there you go. I do give bonus points for good names. The other day I had uh, Sigourney Beavers. Oh, that's not bad. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. our our name was uh, Pirate Cock Punchers. Nice. What nice. kind of what kind of what kind of prizes or money or bar oh, credit or whatever you yeah, do? That's, you do that's dependent on the the venue. On the place. Uh, yeah, I do a uh, a craft beer bar and a wine bar. And I mean, I, I've talked the wine bar into doing the same um, gifts as the uh, bar bar. Excuse me. Mm. Um, and doing like little gift cards. Um, but it's been yep. fun. It's been a nice break from people yelling out Freebird. Scott, you were telling me that you actually have some issues with getting the participants to not cheat. Oh, those fuckers. And uh, I'm wondering um, if you could explain that for just a moment. And then maybe, Robert, do you have any uh, solution that they might, you know, that they implement in your trivia night that might help them? Dude, no. Our guy, our guy, we could be sitting at a table and right next to us at the table over, every single one of them could be on their cell phones and he won't say shit. And we're just like, what the fuck, bro? You said at the beginning, no devices. We turn them all off. We put them in our pockets. We don't do anything until halftime. And then we can like look at our answers or whatever. But people will just be sitting there and they're probably just texting or whatever. But you don't know. I mean, we always crush them anyway. But, you know, see, that's half of my argument is because usually the teams that complain to me are the teams that end up freaking winning anyway. See, I had phone jails. Um, I had Tupperware containers that I would give to teams and be like, you got to put your phone in the bucket. You can keep the bucket. So it's not like I'm taking your phone from you, but it's got to sit in the middle of your table, put your phone in the bucket, put the lid on it. You don't get to use your, yeah, you don't get to use your phone. Uh, people will complain about freaking everything. One lady was, well, my husband's in Russia and I want to talk to him and this is the only time I get to talk to him, yada, yada, yada. So they complain like, uh, the only thing I can do now is get a wireless microphone and I'm just going to stand over people's shoulders. Like, what are you looking at on your phone there? You're proctoring the test. You fucker. Public shaming. Public shaming. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I do call people out on the microphone. I'll absolutely say, hey, what are you doing over there on your phone? Are you looking at something? And usually you can tell by the deer in the headlights look whether or not they're cheating. But yeah. for the most part, some people are just sneaky as shit. Or for that matter, you can't catch everything. Um, well, you can't. I you mean, might... you could. someone could walk to the bathroom and then use their phone in the bathroom to get an answer and then yep. come back. I mean, <clears throat> Yep. Yep, no, you can't. It's it's freaking frustrating. But it's weird because, and I think I told you this earlier, because the, the wine venue that I do it at, those are the fuckers that cheat. The other venue that I do it at, which 
is far more progressive. I don't know. Every, I, every conversation I hear there is something that I would probably disagree with. Um, but they don't cheat. Like, they're, they want to play. They want to do it honestly. Um, yeah, the game I play, the rewards aren't, you know, so amazing. So it's like, why would you bother cheating? I guess some people would do it just for the, the bragging, yeah. right? Or whatever, yeah. or the thrill of winning. I mean, yeah, but there's no pride in cheating to win. Right? I no know. Pride. I know. That's the big people thing. People still do it. So yeah. Yeah. What's funny to me, though, is that the wine venue, the people that complain about the people that are on their phones are people that have been caught on their phones. Hmm. So I'm like, well, I don't know how you want me to be mad when you've done this shit yourself. Like, yeah. if you're all cheaters, fuckers, just drink your wine and answer my question. So do you yeah. have our guy? Our guy is contractually required for the trivia to last two hours. Is that a similar deal to you? Um, I try to keep it at and under two hours. Uh, I'm not contractually obligated to make it last that long. But I try to keep it under it just because I'm doing something during the week. And if I want to keep people during the week, then I got to get them home. Are you writing the questions yourself or are you I using do. the national? Well, I mean, I, oh, I don't know if there's an actual national thing. No, Amazon had a whole bunch of free books. Free! Um, Amazon had a whole bunch of free shit. Um, I bought a Trivial Pursuit book um, for like four bucks at half price books. And then uh, just egads of online websites and then occasionally something will pop up in your brain as an idea and you'll go look up something and like tv slogans or uh game show slogans that was fun okay here's um, a question for you okay because our guy the guy that makes it's, it's our company is called fame trivia and the guy that writes him his name is a, the fish and he used to be a radio dj and he's moved since but he still does the trivia but he will reuse so many questions mm. that half the time it's just a memory test. It's like, <laughs> no. Okay, we've had this question twice. Remember, so what was our what was the correct answer and what was our answer? I forget. So how do you do you get lazy and reuse an yeah. old question here and there or what do you do? This is my book. Well yeah. this was my starting book. Um literally dude I went these are all questions and I just went in and pulled them off the internet, found crazy categories that I liked. Um, and did it all myself. I hate reusing questions. Uh, I've tried it, and I got called out instantly. Really? Like, someone immediately was like, hey, you've asked this question before. I was yeah. like, well, then take the point. Like, yeah. Freak shut the hell up. Like, enjoy <laughs> it. Fucker. It's a memory test. Away. I'm just giving them away. But, no, I do. I Every, every week, um, I avoid it. For a while there, I was doing it where I would make, like, eight to ten categories and then walk around with a glass and let them draw out the six categories that we were going to do for that night. Mm. Um, and then just use the other four the next week and make, you know, six more categories out of 10 and just keep doing that. But again, these fuckers complain about everything. So no, I've gone full dictator. You will take my six categories and you will like them. And do you struggle with making the quiz, you know, just hard enough? So yes. it's not too easy. Yep. Not too hard. So that people, you know, feel like yep. they're contributing and doing well, yes. but not crushing it. Yep. I had that's a category. Art, right? Yeah, that is the art. That's the double-edged sword right there. How do I make a category that's just hard enough and just easy enough? Um, I had a category that was opening book sentences. Like, like it's the best the of times. The worst of times. Yeah, right. Of, and, and I chose super famous books. Yeah. Like every single one of them. And I told, I told the crowd before I did this, I was like, look, this is going to be a hard category. But when I tell you the name of this book, none of you are going to go, I've never heard that. I've never heard of that before. Um, and 
the first one was mind comp. <laughs> uh, uh, that was funny. Um, uh, dog whistler, you. <laughs> that was so funny. Did anybody get it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that one I gave a hint on. I was like, because um, it was pretty ridiculous, but there was a German word in it, and I, I figured that would give it away. Um, but I told them that it was somebody from World War II, and for that moment, for the most part, they like, otherwise I didn't do it. But I had a guy. Man, he, he fucking complains. He's sitting there goes, no, oh, let's scrub this whole damn category. We don't want it. Um, and then I score their, their sheet, and they got six out of eight. That's perfectly good score. Like, that's perfectly fine. And so I told him that, and I called him out over the microphone. I was like, you got six out of eight freaking questions right, and you wanted me to X this whole category. And I was like, that's it. Next week, I'm coming back with the easiest fucking trivia category ever. And I'm going to listen to all of you make the same sound every time I ask the question, or you go, ah. Everybody fucking got that one right. It's yeah. Like, yep, yep. I know the sound. Everybody makes the sound. Yeah. I asked the question: their who, eyes. Is the, who is the first person to land on the moon? And everybody makes the same sound. Yeah. So what this has to do with the movie? I don't know. <laughs> Jeff Bridges was great at trivia. Um, <laughs> his character in the movie was an avid trivia goer. Um, he spent a lot of time in bars. In he bars spent a lot trivia. of time in bars. What are you talking about? He also actually, as a young bad Blake, he hosted trivia nights. See, well, there Very you go. Untrue fun I'm fact. Right. Ties right into peak Scott M. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, God, yes. Uh, that poor girl. She fell <laughs> off. That's what happens when you tell people they peaked in college. Life just turns to shit for you. So sad. Yeah, this is a, a Facebook uh, debate person that we would spar with a couple of years back. And she said, uh, guy who probably peaked in college. Mm-hmm. That's what she referred to you as. If anything, yeah. I regressed in college. <laughs> You're probably pretty peak now. You just did the uh, Spartan race for the second or third time, right? Not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Third time. What's no, that? Fourth time. It's just those obstacle course races. I'm being like nerdy. Like a Ninja Warrior style thing? Yeah. Yeah, run around in the mud. Pretend like you're a kid for a little while and slug it out. I don't know. It's fun. Um, Jeff Bridges' character was also an avid obstacle course racer and Crazy Heart. <laughs> that's true. That's, 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 actually, that's actually why he survived the car crash. That's right. Yeah. Now, did you guys know this was based on a novel? Yeah, I saw that. The novel ends uh, rather differently, and the director actually preferred to shoot the scenes uh, in the novel, and he wanted it to end the same way as the novel, but the higher-ups said, no, we want to have a more uplifting ending where the character has had a full arc and recovered and become, uh, uh, you know, like cleaned his room and become more of a complete person and finally is creating something of value back into the world. But in the in the novel, and also this was shot, he falls off the wagon at the end and dies of a heart attack, which is foreshadowed earlier in after his accident when the doctor says, right. you're going to die from a stroke or a heart attack or, you know, this or that or something else because you're in terrible yeah, shape. I I'd left it that way. That would have been good. Would've been a yeah, much I, I think I would prefer the heart attack ending, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and there was been better. where he actually went and met his son. Oh, that been cool. Met him, and I think that's in the deleted scenes uh, section yeah. if you happen to have that goes with that song dude they keep and they kept they kept doing it they kept saying the same line funny how fallen feels like flying for a little while and that's every moment of of his life and that's that that shot uh when he's first dating the girl he's flying but he's really falling when he finally gets sober he's flying but he's still falling because he goes to her house and she just crushes him and says if you love me you'll leave me alone like that's the whole thing. I, they should have. They, I, I think that would have made the movie even better if they had let it go on that way, because it would have played on that line even more. So he was felt like flying so many different times, and he's just falling, just crashing. 
Yeah, and I, I like your your take on this because I think that really is a strong st- central message to the movie. And, and had they used that more effectively, to where you know we actually saw him being drunk and it impacting and affecting him, and that contributing to the kid going getting lost and him doing something that would have I don't know been a consequence uh, in his relationship with the woman with the Maggie Gyllenhaal character uh, as a result of him being drunk. Like if if it I don't know if I <laughs> Well, Maybe well, I'm even by numbers a little bit, but you know, telegraph at home, like, hey, he's a drunk, and here are the impacts of him being drunk, and here's the consequences as a result. Versus this sort of, we're alluding to it, we're not going to make it clear, it's a little ambiguous, and oh, he really wasn't drunk at this point, but he's going to get blamed as if he was. Right, but but I mean, man, but it's like he gets comfortable, and the more he gets comfortable, the more he becomes, you know, bad Blake himself. Um, I. I I mean, I agree. They should have done a better job of showing him drinking before he went to the mall if he was actually as drunk as they said he was, or as he said he was. Um, and I think it's just one of those moments that they left it up to us to just interpret that he was that drunk all the time. Because he just gets comfortable with her. <clears throat> like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I didn't and who doesn't just that. You know, who doesn't get a little worse once they get comfortable? I mean, yeah, all, you see married couples all the time. They end up getting fat, having, mm-hmm. you know, letting themselves go. You know, mm-hmm. you're with somebody who loves you almost unconditionally. Most mm-hmm. love is conditional, but yeah, you know, supports you yep. and just wants to you do best. But yep. And I mean, he's like, all he's in his, he's set in his ways. You know, fifty-seven. Set, you know, that's not going to change overnight. And she's young. <laughs> now, what did you guys take away as her motivation for being interested in him? Because I thought it was bizarre. Like it seemed very out of place. He's almost thirty years older than her. He has a son about her age, and She's not a groupie. She's been with guys who have drinking problems before. So how does she even get into this situation? Because I, I find it kind of hard to believe that she would be interested in him. Chicks love bad boys, man. I don't have to tell you. Chicks love bad boys. That is true. Uh, she gives it away in her moment where he's laying on the ground on the bed and he goes, have you heard that song? And she goes, yeah, I think I've heard it before. And he goes, oh, that's what they say about all the good ones. Um, I just wrote that. And she goes, see, that's not fair. I think her big attraction to him was that she was starting to get into writing and he was a phenomenal writer. Okay. And, and so that that's why that moment movie. like hurt her because it was difficult for her and it seemed so easy for him. It's so he, easy. It just pours out of you. Yeah. Right. And he didn't appreciate it. Right. Like he didn't. Well, he, he just kind of brushed it off. Uh, yeah. Was, uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He took it for granted. Um, it was just something that happened instead of being a, the song that was going to take him to the next level. You know, it was just, this just happened. This was just a nonchalant kind of moment, you know, and she couldn't stand that. Um, but I think her biggest interest was that he was just a writer and she was starting to, cause even that was one of the questions when he was interviewing her was, when did you become a writer? And then they give away that little hint of, well, I learned what I didn't want to do. Um, so maybe her fascination was just with him as being a songwriter and that it just, again, that man, that vulnerable side, dude, that's what chicks love. That's right. I'm making assumptions about what women want. <laughs> like you're in a Mel Gibson movie. <sighs> That's right. Uh, so, That's Robert, right. I'm going to direct this at you, and I'm going to pull in uh, uh, an episode we did not too long ago on um, Bad Times at the El Royale, also starring Jeff Lebowski. Woo. And in that film, I was noticing things that were untold, but almost purposefully. And so it was left to the viewer's imagination to fill in the gaps. And I appreciated that in that film. I'm noticing something similar in this one where they're sort of leaving things out 
but not in the same kind of way where you fill it in, but in a way to where it feels missing. And yeah, no, Royale, it, it felt intentional. Every, every, every shot felt intentional to tell you just enough of what you needed to know to lead you on and, you know, get you interested in the story. Whereas this, it seems like it just seemed a little bit, I don't know, I don't want to say sloppy because it doesn't, it wasn't a poorly made film, but I really think they missed a trick where the viewer could have been more on this journey with him and kind of see him self-destruct with the alcohol, you know, how easy it is to fall back into your vices once you've had this, um, this person accept you for who you are, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like there were a bunch of moments in this movie where it's almost setting something else up and then never delivers it. You know, there's a couple of things that happen and you're like, okay, this is going to resolve later. And then they just leave it open ended and they never like the heart attack thing, like the heart attack thing and like her allusions to previous situations and it having some sort of impact, like either with the kid or with her or even the kid, especially the scene we were just talking about where she's hurt because it's so easy for him to write a song Mm -hmm. and it's difficult for her, but we don't get a payoff from, for that later on. We don't get that. The reason that she's hurt by that is because she struggled so much. You know what I mean? Like, like it's, it's like there were all these elements, the bones were good, but the the execution wasn't quite there. This this could be a case of loss in translation. I mean, the book could go through all this stuff, but they got to pick and choose what to film for the film. You have to. They did spend a lot of time trying to develop the love story. I think they could have cut out a pretty good amount of that. Um, the middle section of the they movie. Also, they also spent a lot of time at concerts or performances. Right, right, right. Which doesn't exactly, I mean, it's nice and I enjoyed it, well, but it doesn't really move the plot forward a lot. No, no, I agree. It doesn't move the plot forward. What it does is it reminisces the plot. Um, because the second, the second concert that they show, they, they give you a glimpse at what bad Blake was like when he's sweating on stage and he's in it. And compared to the first one where he's sitting on the freaking speaker and he's drunk out of his mind, like that's current bad Blake, but they gave us a glimpse of what bad Blake was. And maybe that's why, uh, Gene falls for him is because he gives her a glimpse of what his past was where, because man, when there's some shows where you're just on it, there is there is nothing you can pick that is not going to be the perfect song to 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 make that wave. Just keep going with the crowd where you suckered them in like that, where you could literally get off stage and go dance with somebody in the middle of the song, and then get back on it because it's just that hot of a moment. Um, I think that was what they tried to show with the second one, but they could have done it in the, the one concert where he's doing that. And they could have eliminated the first part. Um, and probably still had the same impact, but I think they were trying to, maybe that's what, maybe that's exactly what they were trying to do. Maybe they were doing that just for the sole purpose of giving us a glimpse at what Gene was attracted to, that there was an inkling of a great musician inside the shell of a man. I will say, I will say before Daniel makes his excellent point, but I know he's going to make that. (laughs) I will say that the, the, uh, the performances and the, you know, all that stuff, it wasn't just empty time. It was showing us his character, how he felt about each different thing, about his relationship with Tommy. You know, once he met this girl, how excited he was about that. And the second performance was a lot better. And it was doing work. It wasn't, you know, for the movie, right, right, but right. it didn't necessarily I don't know, do anything, anything to it. Yeah, you're right. Okay, go ahead, Daniel. 
I agree yeah. with you. It, it was it was unnecessary. That's the, there was such a massive chunk of the middle of the movie spent on information that they probably could have summed up a lot quicker and yeah. taken the plot in a better direction. Agreed. Then they could have filled in some of these uh, story threads. All right, so I'll just move this uh, this point earlier in post. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, to the point to the musical performances, that was actually the actors singing, and uh, they had a voice coach and, and got them through it. And I thought that they did a, a very fine job, Jeff Bridges and Colin Farrell, in their, in their singing. And even Robert Duvall, of all people, was singing out on the uh, fishing boat. But my, my I point, appreciate that. The, the point I was going to make earlier was during that second performance, I think he's inspired by actually having a great musician playing with him who's not oh yeah oh yeah dude you know the the uh the piano man playing with somebody that's good that that's my lead guitar player austin uh the first time i played with him i remember i'll never forget it he played um high and dry by radiohead at an open mic and i remember looking at my buddy next to me and going i would have paid to have seen that my he was phenomenal it's just that was probably my favorite thing about open mic nights is half the bar doesn't give a shit. You know, they're there drinking on a freaking Wednesday or Tuesday night. But the other half is tuned in. And occasionally, every once in a while, someone would get up on the stage and just fucking blow your mind and just would be phenomenal. Um, dude, and that was that was my favorite thing. But that was when you get up there with somebody that is a great musician, that takes you to another level. It, it absolutely takes you to another level. It, it's if. If I my biggest thing is I can throw a curveball at these guys any single moment and and we do it all the time. Um, there's a video that I've got on my Instagram right now of us playing a reggae song and we've never practiced it. I literally just was like, hey guys, here's the chords, let's go. And they're just that good at what they do that it just sounds phenomenal. It sounds like you've been practicing it for 20 freaking years. So I totally get that point. That's absolutely true. Getting up on stage with somebody that is phenomenal will absolutely make you play better and make you play harder because then you just you get caught up in that moment again where what I was saying earlier where you don't even have to say anything to the person you just feel it you can just feel where the song is going to go and without missing a beat or ever saying a word the song just takes off on this marvelous path so that's absolutely true getting up on the stage with the piano player because they did they did they showed that a whole bunch of times he mentioned it to Gene your boy your uncle's a great piano player he says it numerous times to him. He calls him out and makes him on the piano solo. I mean, he goes out of his way to acknowledge that guy is a piano player. So that's absolutely true. Playing with yeah. good people will make you play better. Now, I want to contrast that with his bowling alley performance, which is <laughs> rough this date. Um, that was August 12th of whatever year. And so this is apropos that we're doing this this time of year. But um, I felt like the bowling alley guys were a really good backup band as well. But he viewed them as showing him up because they were directly competing with him in his mind. Yeah, like, well, and he makes that comment too. Are they paying you more than me? Right, right. And that's the Tommy Sweet thing talking, right? That's like, he felt like he had got burned before. And so he's viewing these guys who play the same, uh, the same uh, instruments that he plays as almost competitive in a way. Whereas in the second one, it's the piano player. And so it's, a, it's, it's more complimentary, you know what I mean? So he's right. able to accept that one as... Um, you know, as being able to appreciate it. Right. Just playing music to play music, not playing music to, to get something out of it. Um, right. Because he says that, and I mean, when he says that, come up early so we can learn some bad bone licks, you know. Um, they wanted something out of Tom, or they wanted something out of Bad Blake. The piano player, he even says it. He's like, I, I play around occasionally. It's for fun, you know, maybe get paid for it. I've got to go to the bathroom. 
y'all keep chatting. You know, this is a funny moment about living in an RV is that sometimes in your brain, you're like, God, I don't want to go put that up. And then you realize that it's like three feet away. (laughs) Yeah. And it's the most, it's the worst feeling in the world when you realize that you're too lazy to do something that's three feet away. But I got to go to the bathroom. That's that's like that door right there is probably seven feet away. And that is where I will go. (sighs) Stay strong, sir. This is peak Scott M right here. All right. Well, when he comes back, I think we should do our final notes and then summary and review and wind it down. And uh, I'll Frankenstein this thing together into a into a coherent show of some sort. Well done, Daniel. We appreciate all your hard work. Allegedly, it's going to be difficult to find where we first started and then aborted and then uh, restarted. Well, you you recorded the original attempt and then now this new one. Yes. Are you gonna, you're not going to pull material from that original attempt, are you, or are you? I have to because that's where all of the intro and the Google description shit is, so it's going to have to be. Oof. Yeah, it's going to be all an right. oof, but it's all right. It's fine. It's fine. It's not like I have two kids and a job and six other side hustles I'm trying to do. It's true. It's true. You don't do it. None of that stuff. So as a parent, would you, uh, do you leave your kid in uh, Bad Blake's uh, care? You know, probably not. I wouldn't leave my, my kid in his care, but... I'm in a totally different situation and I can totally see, you know, a kid disappearing on, on you. Um, We try to be very vigilant about making sure that our kids are where we can see them and not too close to a road or an edge of something or, you know, whatever, Uh, almost to the point where someone might classify us as helicopter parents. Yeah. I think I've mentioned that before. You guys are super vigilant, especially, well, I mean, guy kind of got to be when they're that young. I mean, as they get older and they're a little more autonomous. Right. And between the two kids, between the two, I mean, we got one who's fairly reserved. And then the other one is just like full on, no reservations whatsoever, no for awareness of like any potential consequences. And she sort of drags the other one uh, into situations. And so that can definitely get them into trouble. But that's why we have to keep an eye on them. And uh, they're great. We love them very much. But we would not have entrusted them into Bad Blake's care at any point. So you're thinking Maggie Gyllenhaal is a bad parent? Is that what you're saying? You're calling out Maggie Gyllenhaal for being not, terrible? Not so much as as I called out the Will Smith character in um, The Pursuit of Happiness. where you You're giving her a pass? Bathroom's a good parent? You're giving her a pass. No, I think she made a mistake. But I also think that she she had her own issues. She had some problems, and uh, nobody's perfect. So Oh, yeah, listen to you. <laughs> White knighting for Maggie Gyllenhaal, <laughs> but Will Smith... Sleeping in a bathroom for his kid, you can just chuck him under a bus. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, well, he had his own issues, Daniel. He was trying to be a, a successful businessman, and he was selling these bone density scanners door to door. He's out there slipping every day. All right, if people want to hear more about this, we'll uh, post it in the show notes page, <laughs> lastnerd.com slash 84. But uh, anyway, we're about to the point where we need to wind down this show. So does anyone have any last notes or points they want to make before we get into the final summer interview? I burned all my notes in the first five. Mm-hmm. All right. Sure. Sounds great. We sucked so, as much out of this movie as possible. I, I think I think we have. So, Robert, why don't you lead us off with final summer and review and then a rating uh, one through ten, a decimal point deep. Then we'll go to our guest, Scott M., and then I'll close us out. All right. Well, Crazy Heart, I thoroughly enjoyed Jeff Bridges on screen. I think he's very has a very strong personality. I don't know if he's the most versatile actor, but that's fine. This this role was right inside his wheelhouse and he executed it as you would expect him to. Um he uh story-wise, I can't say it was super engaging. I mean, it's not like the most incredible story ever. Uh, if you buy the love story, I think you'll you'll enjoy this more, but if you don't 
buy the love story, I think it's going to turn you off a little bit. Um, otherwise, it's just the story of this aging singer-songwriter guy and his troubles with alcoholism and just being a, a, a good human being. Um, I liked it. I would say it's a positive film, like, you know, above a five. But I, I, don't, I don't think I would have given him the best Oscar. I mean, I don't know what his competition was, but it wasn't super amazing. And then I think we've outlined our, outlined our issues we had with the, the story. Uh, so I would give this movie about a 6.9. 6.9. Not quite a 7. Not quite a 7. Um, 69. <laughs> watchable. Entertaining. But not super not super engaging i wasn't on the edge of my seat this is more like a slice of life movie that i think you could pop in on a, a friday night and watch some popcorn and you know, eat a movie daniel or scott scott scott's next his turn. He, it's his job i like that uh i do uh, i think my number probably would go up just a little bit on but more of a point of personal privilege um because i am a musician and um so i can relate because the bias the venues that i I, I am absolutely well, man. But it's so trippy because the, there's one venue I play at, and right behind me is is a concert hall. But it's 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 Bad Blake's. I mean, literally the other night I saw Billy Bob Thornton. Um, and so it's a really small, neat venue. But it's these these acts that have been out. Dina Carter, Strawberry Wine. You remember? I don't know if you remember that song. That was a huge hit in the '90s, and she's there. And so it's these big names that were once creams of the crop that have now fallen from grace and they're still great musicians, but they play in these podunk little bars for 50 people that care to listen on a Thursday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, so there were parts of it that I think they did a good job of showing the struggle that is once you've fallen from the spotlight. Um, that is a much further fall than it is the climb to the top. Um, so that I did like, um, they showed that struggle. And what it's like playing in dive bars, because sometimes you do just want to get shit-faced drunk and sit on a guitar case and make it through a bowling alley gig um, because you're playing in some shithole bar. Um, so there was stuff to it that, that I did appreciate. But overall, I do agree. There were parts of it that did not explain certain aspects of the movie. Um, I think I'd probably put my number somewhere more in like the 7.5 than a 6.9 a um, just because it did show the truth. Show, show truth, I think that was a very true aspect um, as far as the, the musician lifestyle. Um, that was very, very true in its depiction. I know people that have fallen from grace and they're just washed up alcoholics now. Dude, it's got to be like 7 o'clock your time. You're still yawning like 40 different times down there. Hey now, hey now. 11, 11 no. 44 p.m. here in Houston. It's you haven't seen o'clock. one. It's almost 10 o'clock. You have not seen one. Mm -hmm. And we are old men, just like we <laughs> <laughs> I do. I've got the youth. I've got the youth. In the positive. movie, Bad Blake was sleeping in the middle of the afternoon. So come That's on. That's true. He was sleeping when he was driving. That's true. Yeah, he took naps sleep. at all hours. That's right. Yeah, while driving. So, so you know what? Seven six driving while you're sleeping. That's pretty impressive. All right. So six nine and seven six, both great positions. Uh, I will. Uh, I will agree that this was a pretty good movie. It did leave a little bit to be desired. I think that they had presented some foreshadowing elements that they did not take advantage of, which was a little bit disappointing. However, I did like the overall story arc where you have a guy who had some level of success and then coasted on that success for decades and came to a, a realization that he needed to actually create something to provide value in the world to be able to kind of earn his redemption. 
and he had to suffer some loss to get there. So when he hit rock bottom and lost the the kid and the the girl, uh, and he made changes in his life in hopes to win them back, and then that didn't happen. That's what drove him to uh, has have his most powerful creative effort, and he had his highest level of success as a result of that, and ended up uh, ending the movie on a high note, which, like we had talked about earlier, wasn't the same ending as the novel, and wasn't the same ending that the director would have wanted. But I think it still kind of works for the film in that he has sort of grown out of his perpetual adolescence and finally realized his own abilities as a man and be being able to create something in, in the world again. And so it ends fairly well. So I'm going to go with a 7.4, just a shy uh, below you, Scott M., below your peak and oh, just above. I did Robert, peak. I peaked at 7.6. Six, six nine. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a. There's a Dave Matthews song called Funny the Way It Is, and one of the lines is, someone's heartbreak becomes your favorite song. And that's exactly what that whole movie was, was just showing how someone can suffer absolutely everything, and it becomes everybody else's peace. And, man, dude, that shit's so wild with music. Yeah, it's like... He suffered the whole movie with suffering, and he creates this masterpiece that becomes this beautiful song. They even show it with the setting of the concert where he sings it. You know, like it's a beautiful venue with that open backspace of this really nice setting. And it's just a beautiful song. Right. And I think the point of the film is that if he doesn't go through that breakup, that song doesn't get finished. Yep. You don't get it. Yep. You got to suffer a little. As Jordan Peterson would say, life is suffering. Do something. Clean your room. Buck up. Stand up with your shoulders back. Put on a t-shirt with sleeves. All right. Well, Scott, I want to thank you for (laughs) for being our guest. We have uh, been recording for quite some time and and there's going to be some... Uh, piecing together of a total show here, but you have been a wonderful guest and only took two years. Two only years. took two years to have you on. We will have you on again at some point. We have a whole list of movies that we had talked about doing, and I think any of them would be good. And I agree. probably well, have more substance. Well, this one wasn't so bad. I think we got plenty of content out of this. Excellent. So, uh, our audience, thank you guys for joining us for this episode of the Last Night. You can find the show notes more at lastnightscom slash 84. You can also find it at the Launchpad Media. If you want some of the uh, almost two hours of additional bonus content, <laughs> most of it of us old men fussing around with new technology, mm-hmm. uh, hit us up at lastnightscom slash Patreon, and you will be able to get that behind-the-scenes action. Uh, and, uh, Robert, I think next week we are going to venture into Mother Russia to talk about Chernobyl. Again? Because we oh, are yeah, yeah, yeah. We're Russian bots. And yeah, that's right. true. Those are Russians. We are, we are, and, and red and white on. We do we're Putin's in, bidding. I don't know if we were doing Putin's bidding. Why would we talk about Chernobyl? That doesn't make any sense. It seems anti. Chernobyl <laughs> never existed. But uh, that that'll be a fun one. And the interesting thing about it is, um, it's a it's a mini series on HBO. Not quite enough content to do, you know, one episode of our show per episode of the HBO show. But there's probably enough content for two episodes. So what we're gonna do is we're going to have some guests on from Free Market Green Earth, Free Market Green Earth, on our show to talk about certain aspects of the film or the, the series. And then we'll do a follow-up on their show the following week. So there's going to be a two-parter where you get part of it on our show and part of it on their show. And that way we'll get some cross-pollination between our shows and audiences and everyone will become um, fans of each other. And I think it'll be a lot of fun. So that's going to be Nikki P. He also runs Sounds Like Liberty. And then Ben Pangey is his co-host for Free Market Screener. So that will be our episode next week on a two-parter talking about Chernobyl. 
so it will both parts will release the same week one on our channel and one on theirs is that what you're saying or is this gonna be spread out Dan? let's not confuse everybody there's gonna be part i'm one trying one. not to confuse it i'm confused part well, one is gonna personal be personal privilege, privilege. please let's keep let's keep these down this, let's not use standard language here <laughs> guys guys the key point is it's gonna be two parts one on our show one on their show times tbd okay but it will happen okay. everyone rest assured Point of privilege will be we will recognize everyone's right to have the full two parts in their podcast feeds. And we will divulge additional information in the future at lastnighters.com that.com. And uh be a banner. I think that will be. And uh let's say good night from last night. Peace out, everyone. days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.